Please stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My name is Lisa Rodriguez Watson. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and um, I'm so glad you're here with us today. Today is uh, our last week in the Beatitudes series, um, where we've explored and considered how God's kingdom is among us. In the midst of everything going on in the world today, we are still called to be citizens of God's kingdom, marked by the character of Christ as revealed in the Beatitudes. I have enjoyed this series. The Beatitudes are some of the most compelling and complicated teachings of Jesus. Michael Massey, a singer-songwriter of a song that we'll sing at the end of the service today that Justin will sing at the end, whenever that is, uh, beautifully describes the kingdom of God like this. In a dog-eat-dog -dog world where only the strongest survive, where your brother may betray you in order to climb the next rung of the corporate ladder, where loneliness threatens to be your closest friend, where abuse seems routine and, and hope sounds like a fairy tale. Jesus speaks. He says his kingdom is at hand and he invites us in. It's a place where the poor forever reign, where the pure finally win, where the peacemakers can rest and where the persecuted rejoice. This is the kingdom that is among us. And this series has been so rich. But I have a problem with the passage I'm preaching today. Maybe sometimes you have problems when you uh, encounter some passages in the scripture. As I began preparing weeks ago for this message, I noticed a different internal disposition to this final beatitude. After all the resonance that I have found and comfort that I find from the majority of the preceding beatitudes, I come to a dead stop when I get to these two final verses. What's going on? I notice the cadence changes a bit, though blessing is still at the forefront and there is something to be received. In this case, it's the kingdom of heaven. But it's more than cadence. Certainly, no one loves the idea of persecution. I'm very uncomfortable with it for starters. But it's more than that too. Others of the Beatitudes are also very difficult. So it's not cadence. And it's not that it's hard. What I finally noticed is that in this last beatitude that deals with persecution, there's no agency. That's my problem. 
I can choose to be a peacemaker. I can choose to mourn. I can choose ways to be pure in heart and meek and merciful. I can choose into hungering and thirsting for righteousness and justice. I can't choose into persecution. It is chosen for me. It is a byproduct and an outcome of other choices I've made, but I have relatively little agency in this one. And I'm pretty uncomfortable with that because it messes with my desire to have control of my life, to protect my comfort, my reputation, and my well-being. This beatitude is a tough one, but it is a timely one for us. A couple of weeks ago, I was at my dining room table with books stacked all around me and my computer open and ready to get to work on this sermon. Annalise, my nine-year-old, wish her a happy birthday in the chat since she just turned nine this week, was sitting next to me. So I thought I'd get her opinion on some of the questions I was considering. Kids are great for sermon fodder and for being tiny prophets in our midst. I asked her, what is persecution? She answered by saying, it's killing people because of their faith. She was right. I asked her, what are Jesus' teachings about how we should treat people who persecute us? She responded with, we should love them anyway. Right again, but it's hard to love people who are hurting and persecuting us. So my last question was this. Why would Jesus ask us to do such hard things? And she said, because if we love them, they might change. She was three for three that night. I later realized while trying to create a structure for teaching through this passage, that the questions were the structure. So these are the questions we're gonna unpack today. And we'll start with what is persecution? When I asked Annalise, she answered correctly and perhaps a bit incompletely, Yes, being killed for what you believe is persecution, but so is suffering violence. In the passage, Jesus mentions that we are blessed when people insult us and speak evil lies against us. So all these things come together under the same canopy of those who are blessed. My family is no stranger to persecution. My puppy, my grandfather from Cuba, fled to the States back in the early 60s, in the early years of the revolution. When I asked him recently about the persecution that prompted his fleeing with my dad and uncles and abuela, he said, what was happening was terrible. I was meeting for prayer in the early mornings with men in Havana. We would hear the firing squads down the road. Out in the countryside, when I went to visit once, the Jeep of soldiers was there to pick up a friend of mine. They were waiting to load him up into the Jeep to take him to be executed, but had given him a minute with me to share some final words. As they prodded him to hurry, he kept saying, but I have one more thing I wanna tell him to tell my family. Eventually, against his will, he was loaded up into the Jeep and was executed on a firing wall. My papi continued recounting. Out in the province of Pinar del Rio, a friend was telling me the night before the soldiers came to pick him up, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of leaving my wife and young daughter. Who will care for my wife? Who will raise my daughter when I'm gone? I could feel his brokenheartedness and grief as he went on. What was I gonna say to those men? What words was I supposed to share in light of their reality? My nerves were shot. I couldn't bear it anymore. We had to get out. 
Had my puppy stayed in Cuba, they would have eventually come for him because he was outspoken and he was connected to the church. And when we were talking though, he was sure to let me know that it's not just those who are martyred or who suffer violence that are persecuted. He said, almost every Christian who lives the Christian life faithfully will experience persecution. There is a distinctive about our faith that collides with the values of the world in a way that will cause some kind of persecution in your workplace, in your neighborhood, or in your family. Drea pointed out in her sermon a few weeks ago that we feel a very sharp contrast between the values of the Beatitudes and the values of the world. The Beatitudes are not the path of least resistance. Therefore, we will come up against persecution at some point. We have to be careful, where we have to be careful is in considering contradiction to be a form of persecution. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming I am persecuted whenever I'm contradicted. I want us to be careful about this because when we confuse contradiction with persecution, we trivialize the genuine persecution occurring to Christians in other parts of the world. According to Open Doors USA, an organization dedicated to persecuted believers in more than 60 countries, in just the last year, there have been over 260 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. 2,983 Christians have been killed for their faith this year. 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. 3,711 believers have been detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. These numbers are heartbreaking. And what's equally heartbreaking is that I can hear these numbers and not connect with the reality that these aren't just numbers. They are people and that because of our mutual faith in Christ, they are brothers and sisters. They are part of the same body of Christ that you and I are a part of. They are us. Their suffering is intense. And I want to be careful not to trivialize it by counting as persecution, whatever contradiction I experience on account of my faith. Which brings me to another critical point in this passage. Jesus is specific about the blessing of the kingdom of heaven being for those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Here, the English is insufficient to capture the whole meaning of the word righteousness. So let me say it in the language of my papi and abuela. Bienaventurados aquellos que han sido perseguidos por causa de la justicia. That last word, justicia, is the word justice in English. So often in the English translations of the Bible, we only see the word righteousness, which connotes almost exclusively a vertical relationship to God that emphasizes personal piety. A more robust understanding of the word dikaiosini is righteousness and justice. The inclusion of social justice is imperative to a whole understanding of what Jesus is communicating in this passage and what the entire scriptures teach. It's not merely a privatized personal piety that results in persecution. 
it is also a commitment to social righteousness, to justice, one that stands against the values of a world sick with greed, intoxicated with power, and drowning in a bottomless pursuit of selfishness that will result in persecution. When as kingdom citizens, we stand for the pursuit of flourishing and shalom for the whole of creation, we can expect to encounter persecution. I love how the profession we've used throughout this series has stated this. Each week we've professed together, we believe we are blessed when people insult us, persecute us, and falsely say all kinds of evil against us because we seek to live in love as Jesus did. That's the heart of it, living and loving as Jesus did. When we live this way, we can anticipate persecution. We shouldn't look for it but we also shouldn't be surprised when we experience it. This next section is really hard. I don't wanna preach it, much less live it most days. I feel like one of the most critical questions facing the church in America today is this next one. My second question to Annalise was, what are, what are Jesus' teachings about how we should treat people who persecute us? She answered, we should love them anyway. That's right, I thought. And then I saw it on the pages of my Bible. Just a few verses from the Beatitudes, later in Matthew 5, Jesus makes it plain. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Y'all. I feel at times I'm just trying to learn to, how to love people who like me and who are like me. On some days, I struggle to love the people closest to me, my husband, my kids, my friends, my neighbors. I'm still stuck on the love your neighbor part. And frankly, I would have been just fine if Jesus would have left it at love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I might have even been okay with love your neighbor and ignore your enemy. But that's the way of the world. That's not the way of Jesus. What does it mean to love our enemies today in the month of November, in the year of our Lord 2020? This month has seen the most contentious and consequential election in the history of our nation. We've got some enemy loving to reckon with, don't we? Heck, maybe the question is, what does it mean to love our enemies this week? For those of us who may be sitting around a Thanksgiving table with family or friends who are different, difficult, and opinionated. The chasm in our country is wide. That is concerning enough on its own. But the thing that really weighs on me, brothers and sisters, is the chasm that exists in the church a quick scroll through my social media feed gives me a very clear and disturbing picture of the enemy-making machine that has come to characterize aspects of American Christianity. The other rising is endemic among us. What I fear is that American Christianity is being defined by and falling prey to an idolatrous capitulation to political ideology, both on the left and on the right, before and above an allegiance to the radical ways of Jesus and the ethics of the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks into this chasm and says, love your enemies. So what's it going to take? 
A sentimental expression of solidarity is not enough. It requires, among other things, sacrifice, action, grace, and truth. And thankfully, Jesus, Jesus hasn't asked us to do something he hasn't already done. Hear these words from John 1.14. says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Action. Jesus came to, to earth from heaven, sacrificed. He willingly surrendered his life so that we could experience life now and forevermore. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Enemy love requires action, sacrifice, grace, and truth. African-American pastor, commentator, and writer Tyler Burns commented on a podcast this week, we have to decolonize our view of what love is. Loving our enemies has been weaponized against us. Love involves truth-telling. Enemy love has absolutely nothing to do with sentimentality and maintaining the status quo. If we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus to live in love as he did, we have to pursue not only loving our enemies, but also praying for those who persecute us. Christianity, not for the faint of heart. I was scrolling Facebook a while back and came across a post from Lisa Coons, a woman I follow and that maybe I hope we'll be real friends with someday. When I read it, I may have gasped out loud at the difference uh, between she and I. She writes, Every other week, I collect the emails and comments of those who vehemently disagree with my posts about racism and coherently listed why. And on a dedicated day, I unpack them before the Lord in a blood-boiling, pride-slaying time of reflection, prayer, invitation, and invitation for God to open my eyes to what is true. When I grow up, I want to be like her. Her vulnerability to bring offensive responses to God that she has received is remarkable and it's beautiful. And I suspect that practicing this with God is transformative and grounding. Maybe that's why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so we can hear the truth of who we are and be transformed by love and grace rather than consumed by hate and fear. We will be tempted to drink deeply from the toxic well of hate and fear after being offended or opposed or persecuted. However, Jesus invites us into a more wholehearted and healing way of living that involves praying for our persecutors. May I suggest that you pray for your persecutors this week. Anyone who antagonizes you or offends you consistently, pray for that person as your spiritual practice this week. And while they're in the presence of Jesus, we can also engage in another complex and perplexing invitation from the passage. That is to rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution the passage reads in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I describe this as complex and perplexing because at a first read, I just shake my head at how flippant and ignorant it sounds. Rejoice and be glad. Oh, oh yeah, sure. I'll just pretend like everything is fine and no big deal. And I'm glad, in fact. That's just not emotionally healthy. Just like in praying for our persecutors, there's an invitation here to a truer perspective. We're invited to see beyond the here and now and rejoice in light of what is true and eternal. It's too easy to forget that we have a life everlasting in a kingdom where justice reigns and sadness is no more. A kingdom where all the tribes, tongues, and nations are worshiping at the throne in heaven, rather than being gathered and marshaled on lands and seas, contriving war and death. And death and disease and sickness are abolished. Jesus is already preparing a place for us there. But that's hard for us 21st century, century American Christians, right? We're so accustomed to the instant and the tangible and the material, and heaven seems so unreal and so far away. Rejoicing and practicing gratitude and being glad is a way of grounding ourselves in the reality of what is to come when we are in the midst of our suffering. Back in July, I took a few days of personal retreat when I was between jobs. I got a small Airbnb nestled on a farm out in the rolling hills of Elkton, Virginia, along the South Fork of the Shenandoah River. I spent my days with my Bible and journal, sitting along the quiet, shallow, gentle flowing river. It was warm and sunny on this particular day. The bubbling sound of the river washing over the rocks was a welcome sound amid the quiet of my solitude. There had been just a few people who had drifted by on their kayaks and canoes, enjoying whatever part of this COVID summer that they could. I could hear another family coming down the river. So I lifted my head and from my reading and just delighted to watch them as they, um, as they passed by. And once they came into view, just like all the others, they were on the opposite side of the river and there was a small rapid and somehow they hit a bad spot. And before anybody knew what had happened, the two adults and one child were tipped out of the boat. One woman went quickly for the paddles. The other one grabbed the boat um, before it slipped out of reach and down the river. The child was flailing arms and legs and trying to stand up in the shallow water. The mom, with great wisdom and unmistakable black mama authority, grabbed the child by the back of the life vest, lifted her and said, child, gather yourself, put your feet down. This is shallow water. It's like that with rejoicing in persecution. God is saying, gather yourself. To rejoice and be glad is how we gather ourselves. In the river of hardship and persecution, we are given clear instructions on what to do. Rejoice and be glad. Gather yourself.
We put our feet down in the truth of this life and the life that is to come. And we stand up so we don't get carried away flailing about in the river. This life, this hardship, the persecution is not all there is. We can stand on that truth and gather ourselves and rejoice and be glad. Annalise, and I'll close quickly with this, was why should we ask, why would Jesus ask us to do such hard things? Her answer was, because if we love them, they might change. Jesus uses different words. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The problem that I had with lack of agency around being persecuted is resolved here. This is where I have agency. We are salt and light. Friends, if we have learned anything from this Beatitude series, I hope that we've learned that God's kingdom is among us. And let me remind us that it is advancing. Following Jesus is not merely about living a good, ethical, moral life that gets us heavenly brownie points, or as my kids like to say, gets us to the TSA pre-check line to heaven. As followers of Jesus, we are signposts for the kingdom and witnesses to a kingdom that redefines who is blessed. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek ones who practice power under restraint, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, those who are pure in heart, those who make peace, and those who are persecuted. We are people of this kingdom. We are being transformed by it. We are becoming capable of loving our enemies and even rejoicing in persecution. When we live like this, we are salt and light. We are the ones who can help curious friends and family on the faith journey understand and connect to the God who can change their lives, giving hope instead of despair, peace instead of anxious fear, and liberation for, from all forms of bondage. Why does Jesus ask us to do such hard things? like loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us and like rejoicing when we're being persecuted. Why? Because we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. If we love our enemies, they might change. They might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness and justice. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Will you pray with me? God, we're grateful for your words of, of 
even though they're hard, we're grateful for your words of truth, for the wisdom that comes from these teachings in the Beatitudes. We're grateful that you invite us to transformation with you and in you. We're grateful that you don't just leave us up to our own devices of loving our neighbors and hating our enemies. But we need your help, God. We need your help to remember how to do it, how to love our enemies, how to rejoice and be glad in the midst of our suffering. Come Holy Spirit, continue to teach us, mold our hearts to make us more like you so that we can in fact be the good salt of the earth and be a city on a hill. We love you God and we pray these things in Jesus name, amen.